She never saw it coming. We almost never do. Crises don't have a habit of phoning ahead and saying, hey, just want to warn you, I'm about to show up. Better get ready. No. A crisis is usually a crisis in part because we didn't see it coming. So how could we possibly prepare? That's what happened to the key figure in today's story from the Bible. She had grown up like most young girls in her culture. And like most, she got married, had a baby, figured life would probably just get better over time. But then the unexpected happened. When her child was still very young, her husband died. And now this young widow's world began spinning out of control. Here she is, a single mom with almost nothing to live on, no way to support herself or her child. There were no welfare programs to back her up, no relatives to come to her rescue, and no church to provide benevolence. Although she had her young child, she felt all alone in this world, and starvation began to stare her in the face. Fear gripped her mind and gave her no sleep. The well had gone dry on her finances, and there were no jobs to be found. You see, the whole region was suffering from a horrible drought that had lingered on and on. The crops withered, food prices skyrocketed. And how could she work anyway with no one to take care of her son? The few supplies she had in her home dwindled over time. The cupboards were bare. All she had left was a small parcel of flour and about enough oil to bake one final loaf of bread. She couldn't afford fire, firewood. And so desperate, she stumbled to a field just outside the village gate to pick up enough random sticks to kindle a fire so she could bake that last loaf of bread. And then, having done all she could, she was probably going to just sit down with her son and pray for a miracle. Ah, but that's where this story becomes incredibly inspiring. This young, bankrupt, and destitute widow is a model for all of us. You see, how she responds when the well goes dry on her finances is so exemplary, we can all learn from it. As we look into this story in 1 Kings chapter 17, I think you'll see that the parallels to our situation are amazing. Many people today are living on the brink of des desperation. Millions are out of work. Jobs have dried up. And even if the details of your life are different, I think you'll find that the principles in this story that this widow followed in order to please God and receive his blessing so long ago, those same principles are the ones God honors today. So the bottom line is that it's all about trust. <coughs> Money has a way of revealing how much we trust God. When times are tough for you personally, it reveals what you're trusting in. Am I trusting God 
Or am I trusting my investment portfolio? As she searched this field for sticks to start the fire, a stranger struck up a conversation. His name was Elijah. Elijah. He was a Jewish prophet, and he, he was also facing desperate times. You see, he had predicted that a severe famine would strike the land because the people had turned their hearts away from the true God. Instead, they were worshiping a God called Baal. If you study the ancient record, Baal was the God of fertility and of rain. Elijah had explained in this particular case, the reason God was withholding rain and withdrawing it was because the people had fallen into idolatry. And God was trying to get their attention. God was allowing this as a discipline in their lives. Now think of that for a moment. God is withholding his blessing in an area where people are worshiping the gift more than the giver. He still does that sometimes today. People will often pray for a bigger house or a, a car or a, a bank account. And then when God doesn't deliver, they ask, why would a good God withhold this from me? Answer, because God is not going to promote idolatry. Now, let's be crystal clear here. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with the bigger house, the bigger car, the bigger bank account. Nothing inherently wrong with those things at all. But God knows the idols in our lives. And when money or anything else becomes too important for us and to us and begins to edge him out, we should not be surprised when God begins to withdraw his blessing in that particular area of our lives. Well, the religious authorities are furious with Elijah for daring, daring to show the correlation between their idolatry and the withholding of God's blessing. And so, to save his own life, he's been hiding out in a ravine where there is a brook to provide drinking water. But I want you to notice what happens next. We're picking up here now in 1 Kings 17, verse 7. It says, sometime later, the brook dried up. Okay, time out, time out here. I think we all need a moment. God sent Elijah to the brook. Elijah obeys. So he is totally within God's will. He's doing nothing wrong. He's obeying God and doing what he knows to do. And then wouldn't you expect the text to read, and the brook became an aquifer gushing with fresh water as a blessing for Elijah. <laughs> but instead it says, the brook dried up. Now some of you are standing next to a dry brook today. You've tried to honor God in certain areas of your life, but it's just going dry. Maybe you didn't have quite enough money for your house payment or rental payment this month. Or, or maybe you got your unemployment check or your government subsidy, but you're still struggling to pay your food bills. Or, or you're watching your investments dry up in this coronavirus economy. 
listen, listen. When you're standing next to a dry brook or a dry well, as the case may be, that's when you find out how much you really trust God. Can you trust God even when the future looks uncertain? That's where both the widow at Zarephath and Elijah are brilliant. We go on here in the story. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Now, we all want guidance from God, but but think of what strange guidance this is. He's supposed to go and make an earnest request from a Gentile widow who is impoverished. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. What, what, what's more, Sidon, where this is happening, where he's told to go, is a place where he, he is actually wanted, dead or alive. There's this, there's this price on his head. The wicked queen Jezebel is trying to kill him. But in spite of it all, Elijah obeys. He's trusting God even when it doesn't make sense to him. And by the way, much of what the Bible teaches us about how to handle money seems both counterintuitive and countercultural. But what we do with finances says a whole lot about our understanding of who God is and how God is working. Verse 10 reads, So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Now, what would you do if you were in this woman's shoes? She's under incredible financial stress herself, and here is this total stranger asking for help. Verse 12 says, As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. Wow. You know what I've always wondered about this story? Why her? I mean, of all the people God could have chosen, of all the options God has available to him, why would God tap this desperate widow on the shoulder and say, I want you, yes, you, to model generosity? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, to me, it seems if there's anyone who could cop the attitude, look, times are tough, man. 
surely somebody else needs to step up and take responsibility. I can't help. If anyone could cop that attitude, it is her. And I'm sure in her mind, she could think of many others in the town who were better off than her and who could handle this request without it being a burden at all. But I think God chooses this widow out of all the other options, I think he chooses her to teach us some valuable lessons. First, God expects all who call Christ their Savior and Lord to grow in biblical generosity. That challenge is not just for those who are affluent. This young widow was going through some hard times, and yet God commanded her to practice generosity. All the way through the Bible, by the way, we're taught God's principles for giving apply to everyone, no matter what their financial status. Those who lived under the Old Testament law were told to bring a lamb to sacrifice in the temple. And if you couldn't afford a lamb or an ox, you were to bring two doves or two pigeons to sacrifice. But the point is, they were not to come to a worship service empty-handed. Giving was an act of worship. Everybody was to give something back to God. It, it was not equal gifts, but it was equal sacrifice. And the same principle is taught in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus saw the woman and she had these two copper pennies to her name? and she was placing those two pennies in the offering plate, he did not say, oh, oh, whoa, wait a minute, you shouldn't give anything. Instead, instead, he commended her. He said she gave more than anybody else because she gave out of her poverty. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul praised the Macedonian Christians because he says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, Paul says here, that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. You know, folks, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons I love this church. But one inspiring reason is that there are a lot of generous people, a lot of people who have given sacrificially. And because of you, our giving has generally remained strong and steady through the years. Praise God for that. I think one of the reasons for that is that we're longtime members of the ECFA and follow the highest standards of financial integrity. By the way, you, you can find more information on our relationship with the ECFA on our giving homepage, that is, www.gracefellowship.com forward slash give. We have a strenuous budget, budgeting process where every budget request is scrutinized and put through the test of alignment with our purposes and our vision. We practice what we preach. Every year, we have an annual external audit to have an objective outside accounting firm scrutinize our financials. Our goal has always been to be squeaky clean 
when it comes to finances. And by God's grace, we are. I'm just really thankful, honestly, to be a part of a church that practices that kind of responsible stewardship and goes the extra mile when it comes to financial integrity. When the well is going dry, we're tempted to stop trusting God and say, I'll leave the giving to someone else. But God commands every believer to develop that habit of giving faithfully to God's kingdom and to grow in generosity. But second, second, we can learn from this widow that when we give, when we give, God multiplies our gifts and uses them in marvelous ways. Since this coronavirus pandemic really hit our area and gathering restrictions were put in place, our staff and elders and other volunteer leaders determined we are not going to waste this crisis. No way. We're going to repurpose staff where needed, and we're going to keep ministering powerfully in the name of Jesus Christ in every way we can. Recently, I asked one of our staff members, Christine Rigo, to develop a sort of dynamic list of all the ministries that are going on through grace in spite of the gathering restrictions. And I got to tell you, I was stunned. Christine got information from all of our, our campuses on ministries that are continuing to meet online and small groups and Bible studies and practical needs that are being met through grace. Her list, oh, I was amazed. It's nine pages long, folks. Nine pages long of stuff that's going on in Jesus' name, wonderful ministry. I suspected a lot was going on because of what I'd heard, but the reality exceeded my expectations. God is multiplying your gifts and using them in marvelous ways. One fantastic way God is using our gifts is with our online presence. Since we've gone exclusively to online worship services, our online viewership has increased over 400%. By all measures, we are reaching more people now than ever before. A little boy only had five loaves and two fish, but Jesus used them to feed 5,000 plus. You just don't know. You just don't know how God will multiply your gift if you're willing to use it. You know, something that impressed me as I read this story is that Elijah not only asked this widow to give, but he, he asked her to give to him first. Did you notice that detail as we read it earlier? Elijah said to her in verse 13, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. Now, now, wait a minute. That sounds brazen when a stranger says, give to me first. But the principle of first fruits giving is taught all through the Bible. The first fruit that they picked from the tree, the first grain from the field, even the first cattle that were born were to be dedicated to God. In fact, when the Israelites began to go into Canaan, 
You remember the spoils of Jericho? You can read about this in the book of Joshua. The first city was not to be taken for themselves. Those spoils were to be dedicated to God. Deuteronomy 14, 23 says the purpose of tithing, that is giving God the first 10%, is to teach you to always put God first in your life. And the reason why God asks us to give is not because he needs our money. I hope you understand that if God wants our money, he can take our money. He does it so that it will teach us to put him first, first in our lives. And so we can be a part of what he's doing and a part of sharing the good news. You see, the giving of the first fruit is an act of trust. They honored God with the first of the harvest and believed, they believed that God would provide the rest. That takes faith. And when we give to God first, it demonstrates our priority and it shows we're trusting in him to provide the rest. Elijah said to the woman, you give to me first and look at what she did in verse 15. She went away and did it as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. Now let me ask you, why did she do that? She was not Jewish. She had never met Elijah before in her entire life. But verse 9 earlier said, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. You see, God occasionally spoke to people other than his chosen people. And he guided their behavior. He gave to Elijah, she gave to Elijah first because she had received some kind of revelation from God commanding her to do it. And frankly, she obeyed. And through her obedience, God supplied all of her needs. Verse 15 goes on. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. Wow. God performed some kind of daily miracle in this woman's home. It was a supernatural act of God. Each day, she emptied the flour container, and she poured out the contents of the jar of oil, and the next morning, to her amazement, the contents had been replenished, and there was just enough flour, just enough oil, for another loaf of bread. You know, that's reminiscent of the children of Israel in the wilderness when there was manna every day for them to eat, just enough for that day. God promises that if we trust him, if we trust him enough to give to him first, he will supply our needs and he will also multiply our gifts in marvelous ways but it really, really comes down to trust. Dave Ramsey often speaks about how different America would be if every Christian in America tithed. He says there would be no more welfare in North America. How's that for a start, he says. And in 90 days, he says, there would be no more church or hospital debt. 
In the next 90 days, the entire world could be evangelized and there would be prayer in schools because Christians would buy all the schools, he says. I think Ramsey is trying to get Christians to dream, to dream of the radical power of generosity. Ron Sider, author of a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, says if American Christians simply gave a tithe rather than the current one quarter of a tithe, there would be enough private Christian dollars to provide basic health care and education to all the poor of the earth, and we would still have an extra 60 to $70 billion left over for evangelism around the world. <laughs> what an amazing, amazing prospect. I heard about a plane that crashed on a remote desert island, a totally uncharted island, and the survivors were really concerned that they would never be found. They were understandably distraught. They thought nobody would ever, ever find us here. What are we going to do? But there was one man, one man sitting on the beach who didn't seem to be phased. He was just enjoying the sand and the surf and the sun, just content as he could be. And they said, aren't you worried? Aren't you worried we're never going to be found? He said, no, I tithe to my local church and I know my preacher's going to find me. <laughs> Friends. Just like this poor widow in Zarephath, there is a sense in which our trust unlocks God's provision. Our United States currency still, still bears that motto, in God we trust. But let me ask you, is that true of you? This whole issue comes down to one thing, trust. I've read that in the world of trapeze artists, there's a unique relationship between the flyer and the catcher. The flyer, of course, is the person who lets go of the bar and soars through the air. The catcher is the one who's there to catch the flyer. A moment comes when the flyer, flying high above the crowd, must let go. And at that point, this is the flyer's job, to reach out his hands and to be as still as possible and wait to be caught. <laughs> well, that's not physically hard, but whoo, that is emotionally very difficult. I mean, that goes against every instinct when you're flying through the air. Trapeze artists say the worst thing a flyer can possibly do is to try to catch the catcher. When you try and catch the catcher, you're in a lot of trouble. Instead, you have to reach out your hands and be still and be confident and trust that the strong arms of the catcher will catch you. Friends, this is precisely where some of you find yourselves today. The well has gone dry on your finances. It's like you've let go of the high bar. You're flying through the air and everything in you says, catch the catcher, catch the catcher. Everything in you says, it's time to hit the panic button. 
And God says, trust me. Reach out your hands and trust the divine catcher. That's where you find out how genuine your trust in God really is. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today for that person who's ready to hit the panic button. The well has gone dry and they're wondering, how am I gonna do this? They're tempted to hit the panic button. They're tempted to start catching the catcher and try to make this work out through their own effort and ingenuity. God, I ask today that you would simply help them trust the catcher, you, the divine catcher. I pray today that you would convince them, I've got this. I've got you. I'm pretty good at seeing you through hard times. I'm pretty good at catching you when you feel like it's all out of control. And may today their faith be proven to come out shining as gold because they trusted you with all of their heart. In Jesus' name, amen.